Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm here for my third talk with Dr. Patrick Lee Miller, Associate Professor at Duke University. And we're going to focus on Nietzsche and Plato because he's been giving courses and lectures on both of them for the past 10 years or so. And so, Patrick, welcome to the show. It's always a pleasure to everyone. Yeah, thanks for having me back. I always enjoy talking to you, Ricardo. So about Nietzsche, first of all, I mean, Nietzsche is a very complicated writer. I mean, particularly when it comes to interpreting him, because he writes especially in aphorisms, and sometimes he seems to contradict himself a little bit. And uh, of course, he never or rarely does he follow a line uh, or a train of thought of from beginning to end. I, I mean, sometimes it's just fragmentary. So, but anyway, there are some people that tend to say that in his writings, he go through several different phases. Do you agree with that? And what would be those phases? Okay. Um, just before I talk about the phases, I guess I, I'll just express a reservation about Nietzsche as a complicated writer. So take Heraclitus, his philosophical hero. He was called in antiquity the obscure, Heraclitus the obscure. But Nietzsche believes, as I do, Her Heraclitus writes with crystalline clarity. I find the same thing with Nietzsche. I think he's one of the easiest philosophers to read. And the idea that he's complicated always shocks me because I think when I think complicated, I think Kant, Hegel, Aristotle. By contrast, Nietzsche, I can, I can you know, read a paragraph of Nietzsche and feel alive and feel like I'm getting something. Uh, something that I can't say for those other figures who, who require years of devotion before you even get a sense of what they're doing. But at any rate, it, it highlights what it is one means by clear writing. So I was trained for my PhD in the tradition of analytic philosophy, Anglo-American philosophy, where clarity of writing is taken as the, the sort of central virtue of, of writing. And Yet, when I read analytic authors, especially the farther and farther I get away from that tradition, the more complicated and obscure they seem to me. By contrast, they, they you know, at the time when I was training, would have ridiculed Hegel, certainly, perhaps legitimately, Nietzsche also as a complicated writer. And I think the values were inversed, just as the description of Heraclitus the Obscure seems to me reversed. But, but let's go to the phases. So I think that people typically divide Nietzsche's writing into three or perhaps four phases. Yeah, got, I've heard about the three, the four, not so much, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, so you've got the early phase, which is primarily the birth of tragedy, where Nietzsche, that, that's his first major book, 1873, mm -hmm. so, um, where Nietzsche's still writing as a philologist, that is to say a scholar of classical antiquity which he was a professor of for 10 years at the University of, of Basel. So you know, that's a very different book from the rest of his work because it's quasi scholarly. I mean, scholars now would disdain it, but you know, he's referring to, uh, he's making an argument about classical antiquity and the interpretation of what tragedy means and so on. So there you've got that first phase where he's really still immersed in the world of classical philology. Then you've got the second phase which is, I suppose, his break with that. He's certainly breaking with, he's, he's no longer a professor. So this is starting, I think, in roughly 1878 or so, where he's no longer a, a, a professor and he's writing 
works that are sort of considered uh, materialistic, positivistic, a break away from the kind of spiritual grandeur of the birth of tragedy. And one way of characterizing the second period is it's his comic phase. So if he had a tragic phase, his comic phase, characterized especially by the gay science, the joyful or the mm -hmm. comic science, is an emphasis on materiality, science, and, and, and joy, let's say, as opposed to tragedy. I think it's a false dichotomy, but at any rate, there is, there is a different flavor to works like Human All Too Human, Daybreak, and the first four books of, of the gay science. So by, the, by the way, that second phase, is it the one where he starts to, uh, I mean, distance himself more from Schopenhauer? Because, I mean, yes. in The Birth of Tragedy, clearly he's very influenced still by Schopenhauer's writings. But in the second phase, would you say that he's already distancing himself from him? That's an excellent way to make the distinction, actually, better than the one that, that I suggested, although I'll, I'll, I'll collapse them. In The Birth of Tragedy, it's a Schopenhauerian book. It's, it's, it's explicitly so. He's taking Schopenhauer's metaphysics as uh, the truth and then interpreting the phenomenon of uh, classical tragedy and then the rebirth of classical tragedy in the person of Wagner in light of Schopenhauer's philosophy. And so very roughly speaking, in Schopenhauer's philosophy, you've got the, the will, which is real, this uh, you know, Schopenhauer takes like the Kantian thing in itself, this in, um, invisible reality outside the phenomena, but instead of treating it as an abstract, desireless object, instead it's a it's a it's a subject of sorts. It's it's just pure desire. That's the reality in Schopenhauer, and then the phenomena, which you also get in in Kant. Uh, the, the phenomena are similar, you know, what we experience through our senses and so on. So you've got this two-world metaphysics. In Kant, you've got the noumena, the, the intellectual, the thing in itself versus the phenomenal. And Schopenhauer takes on that distinction, but he changes the character of the thing in itself and, and gives it desire, calls it the will. Hmm. That's the metaphysics of the birth of tragedy. And you're absolutely right. In the second phase, Nietzsche breaks with that metaphysics. And it, so I call it scientific... Uh, so a scientist who goes to that will be puzzled what I meant. It's it's sort of anti-metaphysical. And, and that's what I meant by materialistic. He, he's mm. taking the world not as having some deep ground of meaning uh, like the Schopenhauerian will, but that it, 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 it bears its reality on, on the surface. So, and what about the third and possibly the fourth phase, if okay. there's one? Let's skip to the fourth phase as I'm characterizing them. Uh, and what's typically called, I think, the third phase, and that is sort of 1884 and following uh, the late Nietzsche, the mature Nietzsche, the, 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 the works that you'll typically read in, in a college course, like Beyond Good and Evil or The Genealogy of Morality, sometimes The Twilight of the Idols and so on, many others, of course, but those would be the, the major ones. You know, if, if you're only going to read one period of Nietzsche, that would be the period to read. So what is the third phase? What is the intermediate phase? And that is uh, the years 1881 to 84 when he writes Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Mm -hmm. So the question, you know, which is just a pedantic one, are you going to include the Zarathustra as part of one of the other phases? Or are you going to include it, make it its own phase? I would like to make it its own phase because there's a, a clear break in Nietzsche's life and in his career with Thus Spoke Zarathustra. And more, more distinctly with his belief, Nietzsche's belief in the doctrine of the eternal recurrence of the same. Yeah. So he has this revelation 
I believe it's in 1881, that he's living the same life that he's lived in infinitely many times before and that he'll live in infinitely many times afterwards. And he thinks that's the thought he's kind of been grasping for ever since you know, the birth of tragedy. And, and it's true, I think you look in the birth of tragedy with that lens, you can see in fact, yes, he's grasping for this doctrine. He comes to it, he believes it in this revelation in 1881, and he writes, thus spoke Zarathustra as, if you like, the Bible of this new gospel, of this new doctrine. And so I think that the later period, the mature Nietzsche is Nietzsche revisiting the many things that he talked about in the first and second phase in light, in the clear light of this new doctrine. And just to put a, a little fine point on it, he writes the first four books of the gay science. The gay science, as you buy it nowadays, has five books. The first uh, four books he wrote before Zarathustra. And uh, they end uh, with gay science uh, 341, uh, 340, 341, 342. Maybe it's the first three books, and I'm mistaken. Three, three rather than four. But at any rate, he finishes the gay science with these first few books with this thought about Socrates, the death of Socrates, and then followed by this weird paragraph about, imagine a demon comes to visit you and tells you that you will live your life in infinitely many times and you've already done so in, in infinitely many times. It's the doctrine of the eternal recurrence. And then the third of those paragraphs, Gay Science 340, 341, 342, the third of them uh, is 342, and it's, word for word, the beginning of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, the book that you can buy as such. So just let me summarize then. You've got these, I think, first three books of, of gay science. I was wrong. It wasn't four and five. It was th three books and then four. He writes the first three books and uh, in this second phase. Then he has this revelation, and he encodes it in those final three paragraphs. Then he goes off and writes Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Then he comes back after he's written Zarathustra and he writes Gay Science Book Five. So I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm confused. I admitted about the number of books in Gay Science. I'm not remembering, but, but at any rate, what's important for our purposes is there's a chunk, the, the majority of Gay Science he writes in that second phase, and then Gay Science Book Five he writes in that fourth phase. So what happened in between the second phase and the third phase? It's the revelation of the doctrine of the eternal return and then him writing this gospel of the eternal return, namely Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Mm -hmm. But I mean, as you mentioned, uh, the spoke Zarathustra could be uh, understood as a phase in and of itself, because the book itself seems to be at least a transition also between the second and the third phase, if we don't consider Zarathustra yes. itself another yes. phase. But I mean, and it's also or at least when you read it, it seems very different from all the rest, even the second and the third phase, right? It's stylistically unlike anything else. Oh, yeah. That... Oh, yeah. That, that's definitely the case, at least in terms of style, but perhaps also I would argue in terms of content. Yes. Yes. Well, I would just express reservation there by saying that the content of Zarathustra, and if we want to say, you know, what is, what, what's the peculiar content? Number one, the doctrine of the eternal return. Number two, the, the will to power. Number three, the ubermensch. Yeah. Well, the eternal return does pop up in the, what I'm calling the fourth phase, 
many times, but it's not thematized in the way that it is in Thus Spoke Zarathustra. The Ubermensch never occurs again, as far as I recall, and the will to power, the, the, you know, something like it occurs in the genealogy of morality, but I, I can't recall that it's ever called exactly that. So people who want to um, marginalize Thus Spoke Zarathustra say, look, here are these three main doctrines that it espouses and Nietzsche drops them and his mature phase doesn't doesn't have those. By contrast, I agree with Paul Loeb, who's the great scholar on, on the, this and many other Nietzschean questions, that Thus Spoke Zarathustra is his really uh, absorption of those doctrines, his belief in those doctrines, and that that fourth phase is him writing on the kind of things he was talking about, in, the, in especially the second phase, in light of that clear, you know, consolidation of that, those doctrines. I mean, the book Zarathustra is a very peculiar book in very many ways, but one of them also, if I remember his biography correctly, I think he mentions this in Eke Homo or somewhere like that, that uh, uh, the that book was written in a very short period of time. I mean, that he just had the idea and then it was just like a few days that he, it took it to for him to write it, I guess, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I'm not remembering that passage. I mean, I wouldn't contest that he, he wrote some parts of it very quickly, but mm -hmm. the entire thing took him three yeah. years to write. And okay. if if for no other reason that he published it originally as a three book, uh, three, mm -hmm. you know, the word book is, is uh, ambiguous. So <laughs> if we call Thus Book Zarathustra, you know, a treatise, which it isn't, but let's just call that for the moment, it has four sections and we, those are called books. He published it originally as a three book treatise. Mm -hmm. And then he went back and wrote a fourth book which is now included in the edition that, that you buy, but he distributed that only to close friends. Mm -hmm. So, and this is probably why I'm getting confused about the number of gay science books. At, at any rate, he wrote, you know, the four books over three years. Whether he wrote those first three books in an intense passion, I, I probably longer than se several days, I, I can't recall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no I, I mean, I'm saying this just up, up the top of my head. I, it's yeah. what can, comes to mind when I recall I guess there there's something like that mentioned there. Perhaps is okay. exaggerating a little bit as yeah, well. Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure. A the, anyway, yeah. If I may, the passage that I'm recalling that's like that from Eke Homo, it, which he wrote at the I believe end of 1888, very close to his uh, madness mm -hmm. in 1889. Yeah. Yeah. He's summarizing his writing career and he talks about the year 1888 where it's just astounding how much, he, I mean, I, he wrote The Genealogy of Morality, for example, he wrote Twilight of the Idols, he was writing Ecce Homo and, and several other books of the highest quality, mm -hmm. and he says that in his characteristic uh, narcissism, uh, which in this case is, is earned, namely that these six books or however many it is in the space of one year. So he certainly had these fits of passion where he wrote an immense amount of material very, very quickly and, and you know, without, without error, at least by his own light. Yeah, right. By the way, and since in, the, in Zarathustra he introduces or mentions very much the idea of will to power, uh, there's a posthumous book with that title, The Will to Power, that was not, as far as I know, organized 
by him, it was organized by his sister and publisher. And that's a very controversial one because, uh, I mean, there are people who say that uh, we shouldn't take it as canon in terms of Nietzschean literature because it wasn't organized by him and it was at least to some extent, I mean, the content was manipulated to some extent by his sister to serve her political agenda, let's say. But I, I mean, there's still that book. Would you consider it canon or not? How do you look at it? Yeah, so I wouldn't consider it canon, but there are two questions that we need to keep distinct. One is that uh, Nietzsche wrote notes throughout his career and which have been preserved and now translated in their entirety by the scholar I mentioned, Paul Loeb and, and his uh, team. Uh, excuse me, that, that the, the Nachlas, as they're called, have been translated by many, many people. Uh, Paul Loeb has just recently published a translation of the Nachlas related to the eternal return. But in any case, that first question is, how do you treat the Nachlas? How do you treat his notes? Yeah. And they're certainly not canon in the, in, this, in the obvious sense that Nietzsche didn't publish them. He didn't give them his final imprimatur. So one has to treat them with some caution more than one would treat the published works. Um, Although I think that they're important, especially on something like the eternal return where you've only got, you know, whatever it is, whereas in the notes, he goes into a lot more detail about it. And that can be a very helpful supplement. Mm -hmm. So while not canon, I would say important. The will to power was his sister's and her husband's compilation of notes uh, from this Nachlass many of which I imagine were, were intended to be published by Nietzsche under that title, The Will to Power, because he advertised that uh, title and a forthcoming book in one of his late works in 1888. It might have been Genealogy Morality, I can't recall. But at any rate, so you've got two questions. How do you treat the Nachlass? I would say very, very important, though not of the same status as the published works. Treat it with some caution uh, accordingly. And then secondly, particularly the collection of Nachlass that it goes under the title Will to Power, treated with a lot of care because it was assembled and, and probably doctored by his sister and, and her husband who had, uh, well, this anti-Semitic uh, political agenda. I think, I think they both became Nazis in the end. By the way, before we get into some of, the, some of Nietzsche's main ideas, why is it that you decided to develop a course that includes both Nietzsche and Plato. I know you're, I mean, a very, a big Plato scholar, I guess. I mean, you're very much into Plato at least. Yeah. Why did you decide to put them both together in the same course and basically compare their philosophy? Yeah. Yeah. So I wouldn't describe myself as, as a big Plato scholar. I, I tried to get Plato right. So in that sense, I'm a scholar, but uh, I am a Platonist in the sense that I think Plato's right about okay. the world okay. and, and the main philosophical questions of the world. So that's my interest in Plato, which you're not asking about, but it's an important background to my interest in Nietzsche. Well, first of all, I just fell in love with Nietzsche in college, like, like so many you know, philosophers do. So there's that. Um, but also, as a Platonist, I think the, Nietzsche is the sort of inescapable critic of Plato, that if one wants to be a Platonist, one has to test one's Platonism against Nietzsche's criticisms, because I think they're the best criticisms of Plato that there are. And so if 
Once Platonism doesn't survive those criticisms, then one shouldn't be a Platonist. No. So I'm interested in Nietzsche as, as a critic of Plato. And you know, besides just my love of him in his own right, they agree about a lot of stuff, some of which I share. So together they give me the vocabulary and arguments that I need to, to make my own points. But Nietzsche himself saw himself as a rival to Plato. He thought he, he called at the beginning of Beyond Good and Evil in the preface, he said that uh, Platonism was the, the, was the great catastrophe of our civilization. And he, he means, and he says, particularly the immortal soul and transcendent goodness, which is a fair characterization of the essence of Platonism, which is to say that there is some, that an identity of us, call it the soul, which survives bodily death and is reincarnated. I think that's central view of, of Platonism and Nietzsche's right uh, about that. And he thinks that's one of the twin pillars of the catastrophe of, of Western civilization. And the other twin pillar, I'm using that phrase from Cornford, who's a scholar of, of Plato from uh, the early 20th, I think maybe even the late 19th century. At any rate, the other pillar is the transcendent forms. That is to say that there are realities of which the sensible world is merely a, an image or a projection. And chief of those realities is so-called form of the good or the good. So when Nietzsche says Platonism, the immortal soul and transcendent goodness was the great catastrophe of our civilization, uh, I think he's, he's right that that's Platonism. And so I'm very interested in why does he think it was a catastrophe? And as I say, I think I'm being fair to Nietzsche because he, he, he's trying to develop a philosophy that doesn't commit those errors. Very seductive errors. He thinks, you know, you can't just check the box. Oh, I don't believe in the immortal soul and I don't believe in transcendent goodness. So now I'm, you know, I'm a new philosopher. He thinks those doctrines seep into everything in our civilization such that <clears throat> to deny those doctrines is to, to reconceive what it is to be a human being. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the source, to the source of those doctrines, I mean, is it really Plato? primarily or originally or even more so Socrates? Because I know that Nietzsche also criticizes Socrates at least a little bit. And I mean, yeah. in our first conversation, we even talked about the pre-Socratics and then comparing them to the Socratics or post-Socratics. So, uh, and also why some, at least to some extent, that distinction doesn't really make sense, at least in certain aspects of it. Uh, and cu curiously enough, Nietzsche seems to be a very big fan of at least some of the pre-Socratics, but yes. when it comes to Socrates and the people who come after him, I mean, things are not exactly the yeah. same. So, but, but I mean, is it really Plato, the source of those problems that Nietzsche point to, or is it even more so originally Socrates? So it's, it's Plato, but there's a lot in what you're saying. So let, let me just back up. Okay. Um, Nietzsche, so here's the quick and dirty answer. When Nietzsche lectured on what we now call the pre-Socratics, if you go to college nowadays, you know, a good one, there'll be, there'll be a course uh, dwindling, but uh, nevertheless, in some places still, a course on the pre-Socratic philosophers. Nietzsche, as I say, was a professor of classical philology at Basel with this yeah. special interest in philosophy. So when he taught that period, <clears throat> his course was called the pre-Platonic philosophers. And I think that's right, that you, know, you have to characterize that period as before Plato, 
and then Plato and afterwards that, that Nietzsche was correct, again, in his estimation of Plato as the watershed figure. Yeah. Just a, another note on that <clears throat> to tie it into what I was saying earlier about the birth of tragedy, that Nietzsche thinks there was this great age of Greece, which he calls the tragic age, yeah. which, it, which culminated in the fifth century. You know, there was the Homeric period, and then the fifth century BC still preserved those Homeric values. And he thinks those Homeric values are still discernible in Heraclitus and the other figures we call pre-Socratics or that he would call yeah. pre-Platonics. But mm -hmm. that in that book, The Birth of Tragedy from 1873, he describes how it is that that great tragic culture epitomized by what we call nowadays the tragedies of Aeschylus and Sophocles, especially, and Euripides, how that tragic culture was destroyed from within, how certain figures within that culture took uh, some of its values and turned them against its best values and, and destroyed it and created something new, which Plato epitomizes. So in that narrative, not to go on too much of a tangent, I'm sorry, but in that narrative, he thinks Euripides is the, one of the main destroyers of the tragic tradition because he wrote tragedies, but they're kind of quasi-philosophical as if Socrates is a character interrogating people. You get these intense dialogues, line by line, stochastic they're called, sort of interrogations like a platonic dialogue. So yes, the figure of Socrates and other people like him, <laughs> he thinks Euripides may have even been written by Socrates, one of his trolling jokes in that book, <laughs> made him you know, forever cast out of the, the serious tradition of, of Greek philology. But um, at any rate, back, back to your question, which was, help me recall. Uh, uh, my, my question was Socrates. if, yeah, Socrates. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So, so it's a complicated answer because the simple answer is it's Plato. Because Socrates, as far as we can tell, the historical Socrates, if you triangulate who that man was from the few sources that we have, namely Plato, Aristophanes, and, and Xenophon, it doesn't seem like that guy believed in the immortal form, in the immortal soul, or in the, uh, the immortal forms, the, the spiritual forms. Certainly not the forms, maybe the soul, but probably not. So those seem to be platonic additions to the character of Socrates. Okay. You know, for those for those who aren't, you know, familiar, haven't recently read the Platonic Dialogues, this is the problem is that Plato gives us this compelling portrait of Socrates and it's easy to think, well, that's who Socrates was, but we've got these other portraits from Xenophon, uh, another student, and, and Aristophanes, a critic, and they're, they're quite different people from the Platonic Socrates. So one way of doing that that I think is right, understanding it is that Plato took this real man and you know he really was executed by the Athenians for something like doing philosophy, and he added stuff to him as a character, and, and some of the things that he added were the immortal soul and, and transcendent goodness. Now, if I could add another dimension, in those messages of Nietzsche that I mentioned, Gay Science uh, 340, 341, and 342, 340, which begin that little sequence that right before uh, his revelation of the eternal return. I mean, I, I should say he's already uh, seen the eternal return as true at this point, and this is his way of forecasting what he's going to do in Thus Spoke Zarathustra and the rest of his career. In 340, it's, it's called The Death of Socrates. It's a paragraph whose title is The Death of Socrates, and or The Dying Socrates. Mm -hmm. And his thesis, Nietzsche's view uh, of that incident, which is recorded so eloquently and in detail in Plato's Phaedo, 
Nietzsche's view is quite different, that Socrates wasn't this dying hero who was dying for the sake of philosophy and, and uh, believed in the immortal soul and was teaching his students about the immortal soul so they wouldn't have to be worried about him or about their own fate and, and here's what philosophy is, blah, 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 blah. Instead, Nietzsche thinks, no, Socrates at the moment of his death started to see, and not just the moment, but the day of, he started to see that everything that he'd said was wrong. So this, this search for definitions, let's say, as if there were a stable um, meaning, uh, a reality to the virtues that he'd been investigating, that there was a sort of timeless truth of those things rather than this Homeric and tragic account of it's all a contest of wills and so on that, that yeah. give birth to these, that he started to see that he was wrong. He started to sort of see his, the, the, the nothingness of, of his death. And, but more importantly, he started to see his rebirth. He, he, in other words, he saw the truth of the eternal return in this final moment or this final day at any rate. And instead of saying, whoa, grabbing his students saying, I've just been wrong this last 30 years or so, here's the truth, basically Nietzsche. <laughs> instead, because he was a weak person, and we could talk a lot about what Nietzsche thought of Socrates, that he was a dysgenic, weak, slavish type person. Instead of just admitting his fault and teaching the truth in the final gasps that he had, he made it worse by giving them this doctrine of reincarnation that you know Plato picks up and then solidifies with the immortal forms uh, and the immortal soul. So who's the real enemy in that story? Well, to take Nietzsche at his word, Gay Science 340, it's Socrates because it was his final act of revenge on life that he, instead of admitting the truth that he finally saw, he made it even worse by giving this drama that made him seem like he was just fulfilling the destiny of what he'd been saying for the last 30 years. So the, 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 the criminal is Socrates but also the criminal is Plato for having taken up that revenge story and turned it into, you know, the beautiful, rational, defensible yeah. philosophy, whatever one thinks of Plato. I mean, I think those are all true. It's beautiful and rational and so on. But even, even its critics will say there's something really great going on there, even if it's all false. Yeah. Uh, I mean, does the... I mean, in, particularly in the birth of tragedy, Nietzsche talks a lot about the concept of the... Dionysian and the Apollonian, yes. uh, and I mean that's that comes again from the uh, from the pre-Socratic era, let's say before Socrates, before Plato, and so on. So I mean, do you think that uh, that admiration, let's say, of Nietzsche for these two pole opposites of the Dionysian and the Apollonian? Uh, also has something to say about uh, where his ideas about Plato and these criticisms come from. Yes. So a couple of things to say there immediately. One is that although the Dionysian versus the Apollonian is a central feature of the birth of tragedy, it doesn't disappear as many people think. If you look for it, the notion of the Dionysian reappears several times thereafter throughout Nietzsche's corpus, mm. oftentimes in alliance with the doctrine of the eternal return. So the last line of the Twilight of the Idols, which is his last, uh, well, one of his last coherent books, <laughs> well, it's one of his last books before he goes insane, uh, his, the last line of it is, I am 
the last philosopher of Dionysus, the teacher of the eternal return. So both the eternal return and Dionysus, Dionysus from Birth of Tragedy, eternal return from Gay Science 341, mm -hmm. and then thus books, they both come back right at the end, which is very hard to accommodate for people who think that well, there were these phases and he gave up on being a philologist, then he gave up on, on you know, the eternal return and then he had his mature social criticism in the, in the later period. No, I see it again. I don't see it as complicated. I see it as one philosopher who's got these ideas from the beginning and he's refining them and working them out so that by the end, as if to his, his own swan song says, this is what I've been doing. I'm the teacher of Dionysus and of the eternal return. Um, but your question was about not just Dionysus, but Dionysus and the Apollonian. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the birth of tragedy, his analysis of tragedy is that tragedy is this great art form that reproduces the character of the world. He thinks, so it's both a, an, an aesthetic thesis and a metaphysical thesis. So let's do aesthetics a little easier to, to mm -hmm. grasp. Aesthetics, he thinks the Dionysian is sort of what, what Freud later called the id, namely it's the you know, irrepressible, sort of senseless force in human life and in, in the human soul that is uh, driving for satisfaction regardless of consequences, regardless of moral prohibitions, mm. etc. The Apollonian in aesthetics, again, is social order, uh, rules, moral constraints, to simplify. And that what you get in a tragedy is the conflict of those two forces. So, for mm -hmm. example, Euripides Bacchae, where it's maybe clearest, ironically, you've got Dionysus Bacchus arriving in town for the Dionysian festival and everything that represents, which is the breaking of social order. Women get to go out into the fields and, and run around naked and carry you know, the thyrsus and drink wine and, and, and break all the rules. Then you've got Pentheus, who is the king of the city saying, no, I'm, just, I'm not going to allow this festival in my city. This is just, this is too disruptive. And so he represents the Apollonian, namely the imposition of, of order, the imposition of this individual will as opposed to this communal will. And how does the Bacchae end? It ends with his own mother, who is one of the Bacantes, cutting off his, ripping off his, his head and not even recognizing what she's doing. That's the triumph of the Dionysian over the Apollonian. So... Uh, I say ironically, that's Euripides, and Nietzsche's uh, thesis, remember, is that Euripides destroyed Greek tragedy by being too Socratic, by being too Apollonian, by insisting too much on rational order, and yeah. so he has this problem with the Bacchae, which is this supreme play that illustrates his thesis, and he says, well, this was Euripides' swan song, this was Euripides' attempt to apologize to Dionysus for what, he, for what he'd done. So there's the aesthetic thesis. The metaphysical thesis about the world is the world is, as we talked earlier, this Schopenhauerian will, this senseless <laughs> drive for satisfaction without any moral criteria whatsoever. And it's there everywhere, obviously in us and in animal life and in plant life and perhaps even in the inanimate stuff. And what does it do? It creates things out of its own uh, desire. And those things are individual objects for its pleasure, but it takes just as much pleasure in the destruction of those things as it does in their creation. And that the world is just this endless cycle of creation and destruction of the will satisfying it itself. Hmm. Now, your, your question was, I think, if I recall correctly, sort of what does Plato, Plato think of that? Uh, is, hmm. is Plato rejecting that? 
-hmm. And in some sense he is, because Plato's saying, Nietzsche, if I may be anachronistic here, Nietzsche, you're right that the sensible world is like that, but Mm -hmm. there is a world, the real world, the world of forms, the world of the immortal soul, the world of transcendent goodness, that is not like that, and that's our real home. And we're here tarrying for a while to do whatever we're doing, we can talk about what that is for, for Platonists philosophize, uh, but that our, our goal is ultimately this timeless reality. Nietzsche's, you know, the philosopher of time, namely this is where we belong in time. Plato's the philosopher who thinks we belong outside of time. I'll just add one qualification, though, mm-hmm. that although Dionysus is all over the place in Nietzsche, I mean, it's just sort of really obvious, in Plato's Phaedo, this text in which Socrates is dying, and Plato writes this eloquent, moving testimony about his teacher's death and final day of philosophizing, Socrates says in that dialogue, although the Bacantes are many, although the followers of Bacchus or or Dionysus are many, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, no, excuse me, Thyrsus is this wand that is uh, symbolic of being a member of the the retinue of Dionysus, one of his okay. chosen disciples. So this is the quotation. Sorry, I, 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 mis, I, I misspoke at first. Although many carry the thyrsus, the bacantes are few. So what Plato, through Socrates, is saying, many pretend to be followers of Dionysus, but I'm the true follower of Dionysus. And this is really deeply weird in my estimation because Plato is saying, I'm the true teacher of Dionysus, and here's Nietzsche in 1888 in his final line saying, no, I'm the true teacher of Dionysus. Okay, <laughs> that's somewhat weird, particularly in the case of Plato, right? So, but yes. uh, I, I mean, but is it the case, of course, Nietzsche says that he's a, a great Dionysian or perhaps the, the last great Dionysian, I don't know. But, I mean, since he was such a big admirer of this period of tragedy in ancient Greek as he understood it, and because back then, in his understanding, there were these two clashing forces of the Dionysian and the Apollonian, is it that he is completely rejecting the Apollonian? It doesn't seem so. Right. No, he's not. That's that's a good point. So, so back to the aesthetics of tragedy. Imagine a tragedy where Dionysus comes to town and there's this great festival and everybody gets drunk and there's an orgy and so on. And then the next day he moves on to the next town. That's what kind of what kind of no one would go to see that play. <laughs> right. That's that's like yeah. online porn. Right. There's no <laughs> art there. So uh, what's the Apollonian? As I mentioned, that's Pentheus. It's the tension between Apollo and Dionysus, those forces that give us the dramatic performance. So much for the aesthetics, Nietzsche thinks the world just is a tragedy. The world just is the clash of these forces that gives it its beauty and its joy and and its power, all all three ultimately being the same thing. With the important qualification that Dionysus is primary. The Apollonian is the flowering of which Dionysus is the root. You know, so this flower metaphor is helpful to me in thinking about it, and, and I found helpful in teaching, you know, if, if you're a Darwinian, for example, you think, all right, there are these forces, these genetic forces, these, you know, molecular forces, ultimately, that are really going on, but what do they do? 
they produce a plant that has this beautiful flower. Now that ultimately that's still molecular, that's still genetic, that's still Dionysian in this sense, but there's, there's those forces produce something beautiful. Of course, what happens, it gets eaten, it gets stomped on, it gets, its, its pollen gets removed by the, by the bees and so on. That's still Dionysian, the destruction of the Apollonian. But if it were just pure mo molecules with no beauty, it, would, it wouldn't be a tragedy. If it were beauty without molecules, impossible in Nietzsche's estimation, it wouldn't be a tragedy. You need, you need both, recognizing that the Dionysian is primary. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that also manifests in terms of art and aesthetics, right? Because uh, I mean, yes. I know that Nietzsche was very appreciated very much ancient Greek art, like, for example, the poems and the writings by Homer. But yeah. wasn't it the case that Plato and Socrates, if I remember correctly, weren't very fond, at least, of uh, the what would they call them? Uh, I, I mean, the, the people who wrote poetry or uh, yeah. perhaps more fictional stuff, let's say, for some reason. Yes. Okay, so Plato has a very complicated relationship with the poets. Yeah. And um, I won't make it simple, but I'll simplify it by saying, let's just talk about the dialogue Republic, where he really tackles this problem head on. And, you know, there are other dialogues where he celebrates the poets, but at any rate, in, in the Republic, there are two really important stretches where he deals with this contest between philosophy and, and poetry. And in the in Republic three, there's a very particular purpose he has, which is training the future leaders of his utopia. Mm -hmm. And the classical education to that point had been reading Homer and absorbing Homeric values. One of which was, for example, that honor, you know, fame is what's most important of all, that if you die without people speaking your name, that your, your life has been wasted, and that if you die in, a, in you know, a blaze of glory on the battlefield and people speak your name forever, uh, then, then you succeeded. But that war is, is where glory is won, and so war is, is a crucial feature of a good life. That's, you know, that's Homer 101. Nietzsche, uh, excuse me, Plato in Republic Three thinks, well, there's clearly a lot of power in Homer. We got to keep Homer in our curriculum. This is how you form children's minds and the values of a society. You tell them stories. But Plato, the moralist, comes through and cuts out passages of Homer that he thinks are immoral. <laughs> by, by immoral, it's not like he thinks, you know, th you know, this is sexually inappropriate or something. He cuts out passages that he thinks will produce leaders who are less courageous, for example. So when Priam, the king of Troy, loses all 50 of his sons, he rolls around in the muck and he covers himself in ashes in, in, the, in the grieving process. And Plato wants to cut that out because he thinks the implicit message is death is bad and you won't get warriors who fight with verb, but rather with fear if they think that death is bad. And, and that's a dishonorable thing that, that Priam did. So we just got to cut that, cut that passage out. So that's book three about the training of the future thinkers, uh, excuse me, the, think, the future leaders who are philosopher kings. Book 10 is really the canonical statement of Plato on poetry. And the moralism is still there he recognizes that poetry is crucial 
not just for the formation of children stories, you know, nowadays we, we show the movies, right? But it's the same thing. This is that how we're training them in the values of our society, but that it, it remains powerful for people all through their lives. So tragic performances in Athens, for example, were attended by everybody <laughs> who could go and, and, you know, had the, had the, the resources to do so. I mean, it's a festival, so, you know, everybody could go who was freeborn. Uh, and there's a, there's, a, there's a debate about whether women could go or not, but just leave that aside for the moment. Plato recognizes this is an extremely powerful thing. As a result, we have to be very careful in supervising it to make sure that it doesn't promote the wrong virtues, the wrong messages. And so, you know, that, that effort to train children in book three survives in book 10, even for adults in his perfect city. He thinks that philosophy is superior to poetry. And you can see Nietzsche as saying, no, poetry is, is superior to philosophy, if the question is this question of tragedy. Because tragedies present us this irreconcilable conflict between Plato. Yeah. Plato thinks the conflict can be resolved, and it is resolved in heaven, if you like, in the transcendent realm where the soul has its true home. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to the metaphysics, we've already talked here about the first phase of Nietzsche's writings where he was still very much influenced by Schopenhauer and Schopenhauer was influenced by Kant and Kant divided between the noumenon and the phenomenon and Schopenhauer had a version of that that was different from Kant's. But uh, I mean, where would you say Nietzsche differs the most from Plato when it comes to the metaphysics? Well, there are the, the two that I mentioned, the, namely that Plato thinks it's crucial that you not just believe, but know that the soul is immortal and that the uh, true reality is spiritual and good. So we've talked about that and we can go into it deeper if you want. But one thing that we've skirted around but haven't really put in the middle where it belongs is the nature of time. So when Socrates is dying, as I mentioned earlier, what Nietzsche thinks, because Nietzsche's just had this revelation that time is circular, what Nietzsche thinks is that Socrates saw the truth, namely time is circular and that we need to appreciate that because we're living as if time is linear and everything has gone wrong. We, that's an interesting story that we should, we should discuss eventually, but everything has gone wrong with our species because we've assumed time is linear. If only Socrates had recognized, well, he was recognized, if only he had taught in his final moments the truth, then this catastrophe wouldn't have been intensified by Plato. Because to be honest, as, as we may discuss, the real catastrophe was linear time, was, the, was the, our species belief that time moves from past to future and that the past is irrevocable and the future is, uh, can be influenced and the past cannot and so on. Mm -hmm. That started you know, from the beginning of our species, Nietzsche thinks. He makes that clear in Genealogy and Morality, the, the second book. Plato just intensified that. Plato gave like the official doctrine of how the world would be if that were true. Nietzsche thinks, to go to the root of the problem that is the flowers in Plato, to go to the root, one must address this problem of time. So, you know, to answer your question succinctly, that uh, what's their main difference when it comes to metaphysics? For uh, Nietzsche, time is real. There's nothing unreal about time, and its reality is that it's circular. Uh, 
for Plato, time is a shadow, a moving shadow of eternity. Eternity is real. Time is unreal. Mm -hmm. But uh, I mean, let's go into that aspect of thinking about time as linear versus time as circular. So uh, from a Nietzschean perspective, what would really change for humanity if we thought about time as circular? Yeah, well, everything is a cheap answer to your question, but he, I mean, and I'll say more, but uh, not to not to lose the, the, the thread, the, the real answer is everything. Nietzsche thinks that that error Linear time is at the source of all of our philosophical mistakes. But you want to know, give me a specific example. Mm -hmm. And to give you the most uh, immediately appreciated example, because, I mean, in, in a way, the, the others are more important, but they take a longer discussion, which I'm happy to have. But the most immediate, immediately appreciable way that things would be different is that if time is circular, then we can remember the future. Okay. So, I mean, it, it makes perfectly logical sense that if, if, if time is a circle, well, hey, I'm going along the circle here, and here is my past, as we're calling it, and I have this relationship to it called memory, but here is my future, and we typically think, because we think time is a line, I can't remember that because memory only goes backwards. But if time is a circle, then my future is actually also my past. So I can remember my future. Okay, but, but, but wait a minute, then with the idea of the eternal return, for example, yeah. is Nietzsche implying that if um, things as we experience them will repeat over and over again? I mean, is he yeah. making an argument from uh, matter rearranging itself again in the same ways and that would be why I, myself, or you will uh, exist an infinite number of times because matter will eventually rearrange itself the same way? Is that where the argument comes from? Uh, and I mean, if it's that, then why would it be the case that uh, we would remember our future? Because I, I mean, if, if it's just a materialistic argument, then okay, even if uh, some, someone like myself will eventually exist again, uh, we could think about it as me, but, but I mean, it wouldn't preserve my memories. Or I mean, it's very complicated, but do, do, yes. do you get what I'm trying to get at? Give me another try, because I had like 10 thoughts along the way, and now my oh. mind is jumbled with all of them. So give me another quick try. Oh, 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 okay, okay. So let, let's take this step by step then. Okay. So the idea of the eternal return, isn't yeah. it the case that he, it comes from or he was influenced by an idea coming from physics back in the 19th okay. century, where eventually yeah. because there's a limited number of ways matter can arrange itself eventually if enough time passes uh, matter will arrange itself in the same way and so someone like me yourself and everyone will eventually exist again isn't that where the idea comes from okay so there were, there were two really big things that i heard you saying um, and I don't want to forget the second, so I'll just mention it. Let's book, bookmark it. And that was personal identity. Okay. 
which raises the question, you know, is involved in the question of memory and prophecy and so on. Mm -hmm. But uh, this other big idea that you're proposing is the argument from matter. Mm -hmm. So let's let's focus on that first. Yeah. First thing to say is that Nietzsche never publishes an argument for the eternal return. Okay. So he's not proposing it as something, you know, let me back up. He does make an argument in the Nachlass, the notes that I mentioned earlier. And that's oh, one reason okay, it's, okay. Helpful, it's helpful to read the Nachlass to see, hey, you know, Nietzsche's a philosopher like me, you know, he, like, he makes arguments and like he, he cares about whether this is valid or not and so on. But it's, he's not a philosopher like, at least like me, because he doesn't publish the argument. Why is that? I think it's because, well, it's complicated. First of all, he had this experience. He's writing the end of gay science, well, 340, 341, 342 that I mentioned, and then thus spoke Zarathustra, and then arguably the rest of his career. He's writing that in light of his experience. That's what matters. Hmm. And I think he thinks to put in an argument would um, tarnish it because then people would, would think, you know, I was persuaded by this argument and, and my, my, my philosophy then is, is based on this argument. And then if you come to believe this argument, he doesn't think for all kinds of reasons that that would transform our civilization the way he thinks it needs to be transformed. Because as I mentioned, he thinks our civilization went wrong from the beginning. It, as I say, Plato intensified it, but, but it's, it's our species really that went wrong from the beginning because of this belief in linear time. You don't extract a belief that's deep in our blood. Mm. You don't extract a belief that's deep in our blood with an argument. And there are all kinds of Nietzschean reasons for thinking that argument is ineffective against things that are in our blood. And yeah. I, I say blood quite emphatically, if it, the word's not emphatic enough, because that's the way he talks in genealogy and morality too. Namely, we have been bred not by a eugenics program, but we have been bred by circumstances from our non-human ancestors to the point where we became human beings, the distinction of which was believing in linear time for him. We have been bred to make this assumption, and it, it's it's everywhere. And I think he's right that once you sort of see how it shows up in, in a few philosophical problems, you see actually it's it's everywhere. So one reason I think he's not publishing the argument is you just think, well, that's not going to do it. You know, what what has to be done is uh, a breeding program, and the breeding program is not going to work because people are convinced by the arguments. This is going to be a thousand-year breeding program, and it's going to be rooted in this confidence of this experience. So that's one. One thing to be said, uh, but I've lost a bit. Maybe you want to go go from that. I, I had more things to say, but maybe that's provoked enough. Uh, yeah, because I, I mean, the main thing I was trying to understand is if it stems from a materialistic perspective, yeah. this argument, and yeah. the argument is really that over time, matter atoms will eventually rearrange themselves yeah. in the same way, and so. Yeah the same people will eventually exist again in the future. I mean, yeah. if, if the argument stems from a materialistic perspective, then how could it be that uh, we would remember our future as our past? Because, I mean, it would have to imply that uh, the atoms that compose ourselves would in some way be able to retain yeah. our memories okay okay so that's the first question of personal identity but i think we still need to say a bit more about the doctrine uh itself okay 
and and I, I went off on this tangent, I, I hope it was valuable about why, even though he proposes the argument you're alluding to, this materialistic argument, he doesn't put it in his published works. Mm -hmm. uh, number one, because it, it that's not why he believes it, because of the argument. The argument is post hoc. Uh, okay. and, and, and after all, is that a sound argument? I mean, I've taught it, you, you know, the premises seem true, it seems valid, but of course, science has progressed a lot since the 19th century. Is it still valid? I don't, I don't have the training. Yeah, in I, I mean, I'm not saying at all that it's valid or true. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm just trying to understand where Nietzsche is coming. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's, it's valuable to pause on it because it's not just that he's, he's protecting himself against refutation by just saying, hey, I had this experience, I don't need an argument. It's also, the, and, you know, and science will change, so even if I've got a good argument in the 19th century, it turns out to be a bad argument in the 20th, th those, aren't, those aren't his reasons. He's got long-standing reasons to uh, reject arguments of that sort. So, for example, even before the revelation of the eternal return, in gay science, one, okay. he makes, uh, I'll call them nominalist arguments. Or at least he, I should say, he makes nominalist claims. Mm -hmm. Let me just say what nominalism is, uh, as I understand it. Nominalism from Latin nomina is uh, claiming that there is no identity in the world. There is only difference. So that, for example, this coffee mug right now is not the same as this coffee mug right now. And it's kind of nice that it went off the screen so you can't you know, be tricked by your senses because after all, I may have two mugs here, that difference is so radical that nothing is the same as itself even at a moment because there are no such thing as moments. Time is a flux. So you can see that this alliance between a certain understanding of Heraclitus and Nietzsche. So nominalism the reason why you get that doctrine nominalism from the latin for names is that well hey you and i like all human beings are talking as if things are because i just said hey i'm going to grab this mug and then i'm going to put this mug down as if it's the same mug and i assume you're the same guy that i talked to in our last interview three summers ago and and you assume that i'm the same guy who did so and etc we we couldn't survive if we didn't presume socially that things are the same at least some of them Nominalism, which Nietzsche is not alone, this is you know, a medieval doctrine, and the sophists uh, in Greece were the first uh, to propose it, it seems to me, that uh, nominalism is the idea that that's just names, Those, that's just language. The world itself is just pure difference. Hmm. And Nietzsche believes that. Nietzsche believes, I mean, long before the eternal return comes forefront into his philosophy, but in Gay Science 1, He's making these nominalist claims that there are no things, that there are uh, no substances, uh, etc. Uh, five famous, you know, nominalist claims that that he makes. Now think about this just for a moment, if if we could, because you know the eternal return. Wow, crazy weird doctrine. Let's try and make this somewhat credible. If you think about it as a Darwinian, and Nietzsche is a kind of quasi-Darwinian, think about it as a Darwinian. We didn't evolve for truth. We evolved to survive and reproduce and take care of our young such that the genes that do that kept going. And Nietzsche thinks that you know, the, 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 the individuals, for, for whatever reason, that were being things the way they really are, namely pure different, they didn't survive. You know, and yeah. It's a thought experiment, of course. They were probably never born, but even if they had been, 
they would have they would have died out. So what got bred, this is what I meant by breeding and what he means by breeding, what got bred into us is the illusion of identity in difference, namely coffee cup at one moment, coffee cup at two moment, not pure difference, identity. It was always this thing. That's identity in difference. We've been bred for thousands of years by circumstance to believe in identity in difference. And what Plato did in Nietzsche's estimation, but I think he's right, is that Plato made an argument that's very similar. He said, all right, here's, you know, for the moment, uh, just use two cups because I don't have two coffee cups. Here are two cups, but we say cup one, cup two, as if there's something that they share, namely cupness. They're both cups. Yeah. How is that possible? Difference, but identity. We use the word cup. We have the concept cup that we think applies to both. But either we're just, like Nietzsche thinks, making stuff up. We're nominalists. It's just language. It's just in our mind. Or we're onto something. There really is identity and difference. And Plato's really simple proposition is, yeah, there is an identity in the difference. It's the form. But it can't be in time for the reason that I mentioned, because at every moment, things are different. Plato respected Heraclitus just as... Nietzsche did, just Plato then flipped and said, but we still get identity and difference because there's a spiritual realm that accounts for the identity. Here in the sensible realm, we get difference. Oh, okay, so that, that's a very interesting thing. So when it comes to their epistemology, Nietzsche's and Plato's epistemology, isn't it the case, at least if I understand what you just said correctly, that at least when it comes to the... Uh, I mean, the world we experience through our senses, that at least uh, there, uh, Plato and Nietzsche, uh, when it comes to that, they would agree. I mean, that at yes. least in that realm, it's yes. all it's all differences. Because I mean, yeah. of course, we in Plato we have the forms, and yeah. as far yeah. as I know, Nietzsche rejected that as yeah. well. If but, I could just say one sentence, if I could just yeah. say one sentence on that, just to, to illustrate something that I said earlier on that may not have made any sense, this is one another reason why I love Nietzsche. I think he's right, it, it, even though I'm a Platonist. I think he's right in his description of the sensible world. Okay. It's just that when you're a Platonist, you think, but we know, and we can't know if there's no identity and difference, so there must be the spiritual world. So it's not like I, I study Nietzsche only as a critic of my philosopher and I, and I want to defeat Nietzsche. No, I think he's just right about a lot of stuff. It's just that he doesn't take the next step uh, as a Platonist understands it. He sees that step as a corruption rather than an advance. Yeah, yeah. But, but I pointed that out because here is a very good example of uh, an area, epistemology in this case, where there are points of convergence and points of divergence between yes. the two of them, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm sorry. I jumped. I should have let you finish because that's 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 what I wanted to say too. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, and when it comes to identity, as you said, Plato puts it in the realm of the forms, so, that's so right. a sort of ethereal realm. Right. And Nietzsche here's, Nietzsche rejects that completely, or, or rejects not? that completely. And here's okay. why I brought that up. I, I hope this will come full circle now. That Nietzsche's believed in pure difference, you know, at least. From during that second phase, you know, if it's not discernible in the first phase, it's definitely highlighted in the second phase in gay science, human, alti-human, daybreak, the, the 1870s, mid to late 1870s works. Yeah. 
okay, uh, lost my train of thought. He believes in identity, uh, he believes in pure, oh, okay. So you want to know what is his argument for the eternal return? Yeah. And I said, well, he makes the very argument you seem to be alluding to, this materialistic argument about the arrangement of matter and so on, but mm -hmm. then it's a mystery. Why doesn't he just put it in his published works? Well, I gave you a couple reasons that that's not why he believes it, because of an argument. Secondly, it wouldn't get address the basic problem of blood that he ultimately thinks is the problem that no argument can ever ever address. But thirdly, and this is gonna at least be more credible to you know, philosophers, that he thinks that kind of argument, okay, like what is the first premise? There are atoms, et cetera, et cetera. That first premise already encodes there are things, yeah. which is, he thinks just you, you're lost at that point because there aren't things. You think there are things for this long Darwinian story that's you know bred you and, and the rest of our species to think there are things, but already you're in a, you're in a fantasy world of things. Yeah. And I think that and I think ultimately, well, maybe not ultimately, that's one of the main reasons he doesn't put that kind of consideration into his published works. He thinks that that would just spoil everything that he's been saying. Okay, but but then going back to the argument about time being circular. Okay. So why is it that if that was the case, or at least if humanity thought about time as circular, why is it that things yeah. would change so much for humanity? Because at a certain point you mentioned that uh, he argues, or at least that's your understanding of it, that he, he argues that uh, because the future would be the past, at the same time, we would be able to remember the yeah. future. But I, but I mean, I, I'm just trying to figure out sure. how, how in yeah. the mind yeah. of Nietzsche that, that would work. Okay, and so that gets to this, what I call the second thing, which is about identity, a personal identity. Mm -hmm. you know, so we've, we've done, I think we've laid some good foundation just about talk of identity and difference, and then the question will be when it comes to personal identity. Uh, at the, the risk of being perverse, let me just talk a bit about linear time to show what's at stake here. Because I said, hey, there are huge civilizational consequences. You might, you might think, remembering the future, really? Is that really going to change things? And, and I agree. Like, that's not the fundamental thing that's going to change. That's just a quick and dirty way to say, this is going to be a very different way of thinking about your life. Okay. But here's, the, here's the, the really important thing, and I think you need to, one needs to understand what Nietzsche thinks about linear time to see this. Okay. So think about animal consciousness and human consciousness, mm -hmm. uh, and, and think about it as Nietzsche thinks about it, right, whether it's right or wrong is another question. Nietzsche thinks, to simplify, animals live in this kind of timeless world where they're not anxious about their future and they're not regretting their past. And as a result, there's a kind of bliss there. Now, clearly there's a disadvantage. They can't accomplish great projects. They can't write Greek tragedies. They can't build Gothic cathedrals and so on. But, you know, is it worth it? <laughs> because after all, the price of the Gothic cathedrals and the tragedies and so on is this tremendous anxiety about our death and about our decisions and then tremendous regret and guilt about our past. That only makes sense that uh, that anxiety and that guilt only makes sense, or regret rather, that only makes sense with linear time. Because if we're moving you know, on a line, here's the past, here's the future, and we're going you know, from past to future, and now is wherever the point is, and that this, this line only goes in one direction, well, we should 
look at our past as, oh, damn, I, I made that stupid decision and it's etched in, in God's book forever. <laughs> never mind God, it's just it will never change because it's the past and that can't be changed. And in the future, well, we're going to go along. I've got to make these decisions and, and really important. And then, bang, it's over for me. And then I'm, you know, all, all the anxiety about nothingness and so on. So those kinds of deep existential worries only make sense against the background of, of linear time. Nietzsche's story in Genealogy of Morality 2 and also in Thus Book Zarathustra at the end of Book 2 on redemption, a section called On Redemption, he thinks that way of thinking, that emotional register of regret and anxiety breeds guilt and resentment because the, the guilt comes you know, because of our attitude towards the past and, and the psychodynamics he has about self-punishment because, mm -hmm. hey, I'm in this horrible circumstance. This must be my fault. I must have done something. Oh, here's a God who I've wronged in some way and he's punishing me by putting me into this world of becoming, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then resentment is, I'm so weak, I can't change this, I can't, I can't alter the past, uh, I'm, this, I'm this sort of slave to time, etc. That witch's brew of guilt and resentment will be recognizable to anybody who's ever read the genealogy of morality or heard you know, the basics of Nietzsche, the late Nietzsche, namely, those are the emotions characteristic of, of slavish people, and literally slaves, who then have a worldview based on those emotions. And to you know, summarize genealogy morality two and, and three, well, one, the whole book, that morality, this idea that there is, um, there are, there's evil, which I am not, and then there's good, because I'm just not the evil thing, and if I can follow these certain rules, then I will avoid the evil and I will be, re be rewarded, and the, and the evil people will be punished, right? Very simple mm -hmm. story easily recognizable as a kind of caricature of, of Christianity. Well, Nietzsche thinks that that logic is just deep in our species because of the guilt and resentment that uh, gives us the idea that uh, we need something else beyond this life. I mean, this life, he thinks, is just so miserable, fraught with guilt and resentment in, in its raw form, that weak people need this consolation of the spiritual realm of good versus evil, rules that they can follow so that they'll get to the, the, the spiritual realm because they're good, et cetera, et cetera. E again, e easily recognizable. Well, he wants to go to the root of that, linear time, and say, if you start thinking of your life as a circle, and again, not thinking, but really, really feeling it, the, the guilt and resentment will go away because the regret about the past and the anxiety about death will also go away. Yeah. No, no, I think I think I get it now. Yeah, but I, I mean, but with that in mind, so Plato was one of those people that Nietzsche accused of thinking of time in linear terms. Is that it? Well, uh, not quite, but that that's the right thought at this point. It's that Plato isn't so much. Um, it's not like Plato comes out and says. Linear time, that's where it all is. After yeah, all, sure. Plato has a dialogue, the statesman, in which time is circular. But what Nietzsche sees in Plato is, I used that word earlier, I'll use it again, an intensification of the errors that are produced by the guilt and resentment that are themselves produced by the regret and anxiety 
that are produced by by thinking that time is a line. So in other words, Plato wouldn't have to ever have said anything about time mm -hmm. for Nietzsche to complain because Nietzsche thinks the invention of a spiritual realm, pure goodness, evil by contrast, acts that you can do to get to the spiritual realm, to be allied with the good and against the evil, that is a symptom of the disease. And the disease is this belief in linear time, and he's got the cure. The cure is the eternal return of the same, which we can go into that more if you like on its own, but we, we still haven't gotten to your first question, which is crucial, about identity, namely re eternal return of the same, the same me. But what, why would I care about you know this other me that's going to recur, recur? And you talked about an argument. We went, we went down these side paths, and I hope it's been valuable, but maybe mm -hmm. now we're at the point where we can talk about identity. Yeah. So yeah. So please go ahead. How, yeah. Okay. So how should we understand personal identity within this framework of the eternal return? Yeah. So let's just sort of talk. What, what do people mean by personal identity? You know, that's a technical word in philosophy. Maybe it's gotten out into popular discourse. Uh, you know, in philosophy, uh, you know, the, the name that really gets associated with that discourse is John Locke, the English philosopher of the, the 17th century. And, you know, his question is, what makes this cup the same as this cup? And, you know, in that section on identity in, in the essay concerning, concerning human understanding, he's first concerned with the identity of material objects, and he's got criteria for those, but ultimately he wants to talk about the identity of persons. Mm -hmm. And, his answer, as far as I can tell, there isn't an argument, but his answer, it's funny because analytic philosophers, they often do that. They're like, I'm so serious and rigorous and but you actually look and there's no argument. They're just stating a, a claim. But at any rate, his answer, whether there's an argument or not, is that you, Ricardo, are the same Ricardo that I spoke with on this channel three years ago because you remember him. Okay. So this is Locke's answer. And you know, a lot of people sort of have this in mind that if you can remember what it was like to talk to me three years ago, then that perspective that was occupied by a man three years ago is your perspective because you were the, I mean, not to beg the question, but that's the doctrine. And what that criterion of memory is doing, you know, so it's, it's doing a lot of work just intuitively, if you like, that, hey, if I can remember something, it must've been me. What it's doing sort of more abstractly philosophically is it's saying this Ricardo is what we call in, in these discussions qualitatively identical to that Ricardo, which makes mm -hmm. you the same. Let me, let me just make a distinction uh, that may be helpful. I hope it won't be too technical. Numerical identity versus qualitative identity. Mm -hmm. So uh, two twins, let's say two identical twins. Yeah. They are qualitatively identical. Same freckles, same hairdo, same, same you know, DNA, yeah. same DNA, but numerically different. They're two. You call one Peter, you call the other one Paul. So that's qualitative identity, numerical difference. But there's also qualitative difference with numerical identity. So you spoke to me three years ago. I guarantee you it's, it was actually me. So we'll say numerical. Uh, let, me, let me not beg any questions. Let me just make it simple. Here I am, Patrick Miller and... Here I am, Patrick Miller. I'm numerically the same, qualitatively different. I was wearing a blazer 30 seconds ago. I'm not wearing a blazer now. 
Okay, so if we have these two notions, qualitative identity and numerical identity, distinguished, let's go back to Locke for a second. If you are the same Ricardo that I spoke to three years ago, we've said straightforwardly, it's because you remember what happened from that perspective three years ago. That's that qualitative identity between these two states, Ricardo 2022, Ricardo 2019, that qualitative identity is the criterion for numerical identity. Mm. You see? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's not Nietzsche, that's just Locke. Yeah. As far as I understand. And what Nietzsche's doing is saying, all right, time is a giant circle, calls it the great year of becoming, and everything is gonna go around and it's going to be qualitatively identical to the way it is right now. Where, of course, when I say now, I could refer to any moment, it's, there's nothing special about now, for the moment. <laughs> so everything's gonna come back to exactly this. You're gonna be looking at me that way, I'm gonna be looking at you this way, the sun's gonna be shining through my window in exactly this way, et cetera, et cetera. Well, whatever I remember now is what I'll remember the next time we go round. So Nietzsche's eternal return actually satisfies Locke's criterion of identity because all the memories I have now, I will also have the next time around. And it was memories that were supposed to give me personal identity. Mm -hmm. That's, I don't want to take credit for this. This is Paul Loeb's interpretation uh, that I think is correct. Okay. Okay. I, I think I get it. So, uh, I mean, uh, now I, I wanted to move to another topic. Sure. Let's talk about ethics and morality and where okay. they diverge. So, okay. uh, I will ask you one question and then I will follow it up with another that I, I'm not sure if the second will make sense, you will tell me. But, okay, first of all, uh, uh, Nietzsche talks about slave morality. Is yes. Plato a proponent, at least in the eyes of Nietzsche, of slave morality? Uh, yes and no. So uh, Okay, so perhaps the second one will make more sense than I thought, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll try and just use stuff that I've said before so I don't have to go on too long. Yes, he's a proponent of slave morality, as Nietzsche understands it, because the central features of slave morality are... I'm going to, if I'm a, sl a slavish type, who, and, and just to review, a slavish type is someone who is uh, weak but can't own his weakness. He claims strength, and there's nothing wrong with that for Nietzsche. Everything is constantly trying to claim strength, but the only way he can claim strength is by the invention of, uh, an, let's call it an ideology. And, and an ideology in which, first of all, he, or I in this case, am already powerful, but secondly, an ideology that I can use to get actual power. So let's say you're my master and I'm your slave. Well, I'm weak because if I you know, object, you'll just beat me and I can't beat you. So what am I gonna do? Well, in, my, in the will to power, which subtends everything in, in Nietzsche, that that's Schopenhauer remains, right? It's still, it's still the will, that now it's the will to power. In my efforts to acquire power, I can't beat you I can't, I can't contest you in any open way. I'm gonna, I need subterfuge. And my, my, my best subterfuge is going to be the invention of morality, namely the you know, capital M morality, which is a worldview, according to which you're evil, I'm good, there's a God, 
God is outside time in Plato's version and will reward me and not reward you. In fact, he's going to punish you. You can see, obviously, how this becomes Christianity. And first of all, I get the self-satisfaction of, you know, a meaning to my life and a feeling of power, you know, hope in the future. But, but secondly, if I can trick you into believing this, then you're going to give up your worldly power in, in the Christian version. Right? You know, mm -hmm. you should you should turn the other cheek, and you should carry my pack another mile, and et cetera, et cetera. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna liberate myself as a slave through subterfuge. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I might even get to the point where I'm the priest and you're the believer, and now I'm your master and you're my slave. I've completely flipped flipped things around. So, is Plato a proponent of slave morality? Was was your question? Well, Plato's not a Christian, so there's some elements of that that Plato doesn't endorse. But Plato, in Nietzsche's estimation, I think he's right. Plato elaborates that worldview, the main tenets of that worldview, namely the spiritual realm and the phenomenal realm, uh, the idea of if you behave well here, you have a different destiny in the spiritual realm than if you behave badly. I think it's really hard to uh, recall that Plato pioneers that thought in uh, the end of Republic. We just sort of take it for granted that that's sort of the way the afterlife myth is supposed to go. Plato, Plato writes that afterlife myth that we think of as just the way the afterlife myth, you know, typically goes. So Plato elaborates, you know, a lot of the, the worldview and also gives arguments for it. And that's the ultimate feature of the slave morality is the cleverness, the subterfuge. So mm. it's like Plato is this aristocratic proponent for slave morality. That's, that's the idea of the tragic culture undermined itself from within. Nietzsche has tremendous respect for Plato. He thinks, you know, here's this amazing literary genius who's, you know, got a, got an intellect for the ages, and he can he can write like nobody else. He can write in every style. And what does he do with it? Instead of be, being the new Homer, he gets he fixes onto this guy Socrates, who's ugly, who's who's got bad parentage, you know, who's got a, a pot belly. And, and and what does he do? He turns him into the new hero. You know, this is sort of like, you know, the way the Romans looked at the Christians, like, what? You're, you're taking a slave who died in Judea and making him God? Like, that's, that's crazy. What do you, what's going on there? That was Nietzsche's attitude to, to, to Plato when it came to Socrates. So yes, proponent of slave morality. The reason I hesitated, the reason why I said yes and no, is, well, first of all, that there are many features of Christianity that, that Plato doesn't endorse. But I think more deeply, Plato's good, the form of the good, but I think we should, it's better to just call it the good because, you know, when, when he's being careful, you mm -hmm. know, at least rhetorically speaking, the good is beyond the forms. He calls it beyond being, which yeah. is, say, beyond the forms. The good is not capturable in any conception. We can't imagine it. We can't describe it in words. Reason can't accommodate it. It's not a being. It's not, it exists. So there are two senses of being that, are helpful here. I got stuck on this for 10 years. I didn't know, understand. Being in the sense of existence, being in the sense of essence. So this cup exists, it is, it, it, it bees, it is, and it has a certain characteristic that makes it a cup. So it has the essence cup, if you like. So there's two senses of being. Well, the good in Plato's philosophy, as I understand it, exists, but has no essence. And, and that's a highly technical metaphysical distinction, but it matters to this question because if Plato's saying the entire world is oriented, is produced by and, and oriented towards this thing that exists, that has no character, that 
has no essence. Not just that we can't appreciate it, it has no essence. Well, you're a long way now from the rules that are going to get you to heaven uh, or, or make you go to hell if you don't follow them. Because what are rules but you know the, the, the ultimate codification of a concept of divinity or, or anything else for that matter. So there's a lot to be said for Plato as a proponent of slave morality. Ultimately, the reason why, well, not the reason, but a reason why I'm still a Platonist despite Nietzsche's critique is I think he gives you the best remedy against slave morality, namely a universe oriented towards something that uh, doesn't have the structure of slave morality. Okay, so the when I'm mentioning a follow-up question, yes. I, I think it had nothing to do with that, and now you're going to tell me if it makes sense or not. So, okay. In the Republic, when... Hey, sorry, sorry, this is what I thought you were going to ask next, so before I forget, I thought you were going to ask, is there a difference between ethics and morality? And I was going to say, for Plato, yes, in this Nietzschean understanding, because morality is this power play that weak people make to get you know, power from powerful people and then ultimately enslave them, yeah. that's morality. I think he's right about that, but that's not ethics. I mean, these are just words, but there's some kind of goal in life that's higher than morality and in fact shatters morality because it's so much higher. That to, to turn the good into an idol, mm -hmm. you know, a set of rules, a morality, or even a conception of, of God is to be fundamentally anti-Platonic. So again, that's not the question you're gonna ask. I'm sure you have a very good question. I just thought that would be a great next question because I think that shows quite nicely why uh, Plato is not a proponent of slave morality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right, right. Uh, and thank you for that. But going back to my follow-up yeah. then. Yeah. In the Republic, when Plato talks about or presents his utopia, yes. Uh, if I remember correctly, his society would be stratified. Yes. Right? And at the top, we would have the philosopher king. Yes. And so on. So, I mean, with that in mind, isn't that... I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if Nietzsche would think about it that way. But with the society structured that way and... We can get into that next, because I will ask about the Ubermensch from Nietzsche and sure. the Philosopher King from Plato. Yes. Uh, yes. I think it's worth comparing them. Oh, but, absolutely, yes. But I mean, with the society structured that way, that is at least to some extent also an aristocracy. Yes. Uh, isn't that also proposing at least a version of master morality? Oh, yeah. Sure. I mean, Nietzsche has nothing against mass morality. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, but I mean, also, uh, of course, this is a complicated question because master morality is a term that comes from Nietzsche. I don't know if there would be an equivalent in, uh, in Plato, but I, I mean, if Nietzsche were to look at the Republic structured yes. as Plato suggested, I mean, do you think Nietzsche would approve of it? Did he have something to say about it or not? Yeah, as far as, I don't recall him talking about that precise, you know, feature of Plato's philosophy. Mm. I, I could easily be refuted by a passage, but I, I don't recall one. Um, but I think he would simultaneously reject it because it's based on so many platonic premises that he rejects. Mm -hmm. Right. The form of the good and the forms and the immortal souls, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, 
maybe not the immortal soul, but at any rate, uh, yeah, it's based on it's based on all that. I mean, in other words, in its integral form, it's thoroughly platonic. So he would reject it. But Nietzsche is a proponent of aristocracy, namely mm -hmm. a rule by the best. Right. And he's also a proponent of natural slavery, which Plato also advocated. In other words, they're both proponents of, of the master-slave relationship as, if not a good thing, at least a necessary thing, but I think for both of them, I think a good thing about uh, life. So they, they completely agree about that, if that's what you're asking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I think you've already answered this question, but just to make it clear. So then do you think that Plato's Republic would be a manifestation of master morality? Or not? No, because okay. master morality, as if you're talking about as Nietzsche understands it, yes, master morality exactly. as Nietzsche understands it is Homeric values. I mean, he thinks it's it, it crosses cultures. He he you know he talks about masters in, in other cultures besides the Greeks and and their master morality, but it's really epitomized by Achilles in the Iliad. I mean, among the other Greek heroes, but especially you know not Odysseus, but especially Achilles. And so so what is it? It's uh, a joie de vivre. First of all, joy is crucial. Can't be can't be in any way miserable. It's a, it's joy. But it's a joy in power. So it's a joy in victory. It's a joy in battle. It's a joy in feasting after the battle. It's a joy in sex with the war brides or slaves that are conquered in the battle and so on. So there are many ways in which, uh, you know, obviously, nowadays, people would recoil uh, from what he's describing as master morality, but it's at any rate Homeric. And Plato, one way of understanding Plato's philosophy is he's taking some parts of Homer and turning them against the rest of Homer. For example, Plato thinks the desire for victory is an essential part of being a human being, that we all have this thumos, as it's called nowadays, in the Greek originally too, but this part of us, the thumoides, that is craving honor thinks that's an integral part of being a human being. And as a result, it has to be satisfied. But what he does in the Republic, as elsewhere, but, but really clear, most clearly in the Republic, is he takes that desire for victory and he gives it a new object, namely truth hmm. or yeah. the good. So that the competition among those uh, honor-seeking initiates in that utopia will start as a as a battle, you know, fighting contests and jousting and so on. But ultimately, the true victors are going to be the ones who win in dialectic uh, and become the philosopher kings. So trying to remember the original question and, and, and where I'm going. But I, w I guess I first I want to say that Nietzsche thinks that that is not master morality in mm -hmm. the utopia because it's not Homeric because okay. it's oriented towards these philosophical ideals that are themselves intensifications of slave morality. Mm -hmm. So the immortal forms, that's, as I said, that's just thinking that there's identity and difference and giving a, a really clever account of identity and difference, but there is no identity, there's just difference. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so it's an intensification of slave morality it's, it's anti-Homeric in some ways. Uh, he's cutting out parts of Homer, as, as we discussed earlier. Uh, you know, he doesn't think 
I don't think Plato thinks it is. He thinks it's bad to, to rape, for example. But it's taking that desire for, for victory that's crucial in Homer and turning it towards these new goals. And, and this is a nice illustration of what I mentioned earlier, how Nietzsche sees the Greeks of the, of the fifth century turned the ideals of their culture against themselves and spoiled their culture. And Plato is the apotheosis of that tendency. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let me ask you another question about that, because I think this is important also to clarify a little bit both yes. Nietzsche's and Plato's morality, because as you mentioned earlier, there are aspects of Korean morality that are not present in Plato, right? Yes. Okay, yes. so, and also to get again into some of the details of these discussions surrounding master and slave mor morality yeah. and what Plato possibly would have thought about it if he was exposed to Nietzsche's work, let's say. So when it comes, let, let's take the the idea proposed by Plato again in the Republic about how society sh should be structured about yes. the about the people at the bottom of the society, the downtrodden and people like that. So in Plato's Utopia, yeah, see, yes, yeah, so about about those. Uh, I mean, do you th uh, does Plato say anything about how people at the top? should behave toward them? I mean, would they have any duties, I, I mean, any obligations toward those people or not? Okay, well, um, first, we need to be clear about the structure of the city. So mm -hmm. sure. you, you okay. refer to the three classes, you've got the rulers, who are ultimately philosopher kings, or they're called guardians. Then you've got the auxiliary class, who are the soldiers, who are in, you know, so you've got the executive, which you know, they're making the decisions, and then you've got the enforcers, both okay. of domestic law and of foreign ambitions and defense, mm -hmm. the, the police and the army. Yeah. And then you've got the producers who are responsible for the economic life of the city. Okay. That's, that's the version that you get in, in the Republic that gets discussed and that plays the role in the argument and so on. But there are lots of other people in the city that just aren't mentioned, uh, or if they're mentioned, they're not given much treatment. So, you know, this is, we, we, we need to be careful with our terms here because, you know, I live in Pittsburgh, the city of Pittsburgh. And when you talk about the city of Pittsburgh, you draw a line around it. And then when you talk about the city, it's whatever's within that line. That's not how the Greeks, or at least of this time, or Plato certainly thought about a city or a polis. You could draw a line around Athens, for example. That's not going to tell you anything really interesting about the city. The polis is the people. Mm. And... That's not a pedantic distinction because some of the people inside that line are not going to be part of the city, the slaves. Okay. Right. Or in historical circumstances, the matics, the we would call them nowadays the the uh, undocumented immigrants. Mm -hmm. So you might have uh, you know, so many of those slaves and undocumented immigrants that they outnumber the city, mm -hmm. and that's even before we get to you know the philosopher kings at the top, but. So I just want to turn the question back to you. I want to answer it. I just want to know what we're talking about first. When, when you ask me the question, are we talking about just those three classes? Or are we talking about everybody that's inside the boundary? Uh, no, um, I mean, everybody that's inside the boundary. And okay. I was referring specifically to the ones that are really at the bottom or aren't even mentioned, as you said, like the slaves. And yes. perhaps yeah. 
poor people, I mean, people like that. Yeah, right. So, and we're talking about the utopia, not historical Athens? Yes, the utopia. Yeah. Utopia. So, I mean, in a way you answer your own question, the slaves, they're, they're clearly there, but they're not mentioned. So it, it, there's no discussion of how uh, you're supposed to treat them, except by um, implication. So, for example, when the utopia is described in book four of the Republic, or, or you know, to some extent also in books two and three, there's no mention, as I recall, of slaves. But when the city, the perfect city, breaks down, and just for those who haven't read it, he describes this perfect city and in, in books two through four, and then books five through seven, he talks especially about the philosophers who are ruling it, and that's the stuff that Nietzsche would really reject, and then most of it anyway. And then in books eight through nine, he talks about, well, what if you don't have philosophers ruling? What happens to this perfect city? What happens if you've got this city established, but then in a generation, you don't have any real philosophers or something goes wrong in the educational system? How will it break down? And he describes a series of degenerate constitutions, you know, one ruled by soldiers, one ruled by the wealthy, one ruled by the poor, and then one ruled by a tyrant. Mm. The one ruled by the poor is called a democracy. In Greek, that's just the power of the people. Yeah. And you might say, well, what, what do you mean the poor? I mean, it's, it's everybody gets a vote. Yeah, democracy, every person gets a vote, but by definition, there are more poor people than there are rich people, so it's ruled by the poor. Yeah. Nobody speaks honestly about this nowadays, but that's what it means. And you know, because po poverty and wealth are relative terms. Yeah. So democracy is ruled by the poor, and you know these people are not properly educated, they're not properly bred, and so as a result, they don't make uh, good judgments, and they have all kinds of erroneous practices, policies, habits, and so on. And he describes what life in a democracy is like, and. <laughs> It's remarkably similar to our own times uh, more and more. I mean, I've actually seen in my lifetime, especially the last 30 years, a lot of the prophecies that he tells about uh, about democracy coming true. Okay, so, so yeah, give us some examples. Yeah, I mean, I'll, 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 don't let me forget about slaves, yeah. uh, but um, immigrants. So obviously immigration is a huge issue and I would say becoming even more so, especially after flaring up uh, with the Trump election and also worldwide in, in other countries as well. And seems to me, however, that the, the, the steady policy of Western governments in the last 30, maybe 50 years has been to dissolve the relationship between citizen and immigrant so that uh, eventually, it's not going to. There's not going to be any difference. That's something he says happens in democracies, because uh, Democrats—that is to say, people who feel at home in a democracy—don't uh, see distinctions between people. We're all equal, man. <laughs> Defensive. So distinctions between better and worse sexualities, distinctions between better and worse genders, distinction between better and worse races, distinctions between. Um, superior genes and inferior, I mean, you go on and on, like all the hot spots of the debates in the culture wars these days, the Democrat, that is to say the person who feels at home in democracy is always going to say no such distinctions, all such distinctions are evil, right? Homophobia, transphobia, racism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't need to, uh, we don't need to get into it, but obviously that rhetoric and those practices, the critiques of those things have been intensifying in our lifetime, especially in the last, I would say, 10 years. 
So uh, that's that's you know I, I would if, if there's one recommendation I would get well this is a Nietzsche I was gonna say uh, I was gonna recommend book eight uh, of the Republic where he talks about democracies and it's only like five pages but it's just like a point by point prophecy of what's been happening uh, in a lot of our culture and in, in the culture wars. But at any rate, you asked about slaves mm -hmm. and how they should be treated. Uh, and in the democracy, the distinction between master and slave uh, shouldn't, they, the Democrats think, shouldn't be respected. So slaves can can behave as if they were masters and masters behave as if they were slaves. So too, between the age groups, the young start behaving as if they're old, the old start behaving as if they're young. Okay, so now going back to Nietzsche, I, I mean, I will try to articulate this as best as I can because it's a sort of a complicated thought slash question, but... Sure. Okay, so Nietzsche was also against democracy. So, yeah. I mean, not necessarily for the same reasons as you said, but he was Very also... Very similar reasons. Very oh, similar reasons, yeah. Okay, okay. So yeah. he was also against democracy, but at the same time, I mean, I've read Nietzsche's works a long time ago, I mean, 10 years ago or so. So there are several things that I don't remember exactly. But I mean, I have at least a notion that in some of his works, when he got into master and slave morality and talking about the masters, uh, I mean, I get the sense that he says that it's not necessarily that the masters can or should treat uh, the slaves or people under them as they please. But I, I mean, they have certain honorable yes. psychological aspects and they can have empathy towards sure. the people below them. And I, I'm not sure if he says this directly, but at least it seems to me that he implies that if they are, they have these honorable psychological traits, they should feel some empathy toward the people who are underprivileged or something like that. So, I okay. mean, am I interpreting these wrong or, or not? I mean, that sounds, sounds roughly right to me. I would want to qualify it eventually, but um, in philosophers of slavery, I mean, I'm thinking of Plato and, and Nietzsche, but also Aristotle, um, who have this view that there are natural masters and natural slaves, which is to say some people are born with kind of masterful dispositions and other people are born with slavish dispositions, which is just roughly the distinction. Some people like to make decisions and make good decisions, and some people like to have other make, people make decisions for them, and they like to follow the people who make good decisions. Um, but that's, a, that's the clean version of it, if you like. You know, of course, it's not just that the master makes the decisions that are good for the slave, uh, that's like a, a master pet relationship. So, you know, I've got a dog, for example, and I make the decisions and she, you know, for her, like I decide when it's time to take her to the doctor, when she's ill, when, when she should be fed, you know, how she should behave around people who come into my house, et cetera, et cetera. I'm the master and mm -hmm. she's not. And just as a side note, uh, back to the point about Plato's prophecy about democracy. Another thing he says is the distinction between human and animal starts to dissolve. And I think this is a, just a good sign of that in my lifetime. I had my first dog when I was, you know, in my teens in, in the 80s, and it was, I was the dog's master. Nobody said anything different. I got my second dog, uh, she's 15 now, mm -hmm. so 15 years ago, and I remember, you know, 
in some context it came up that you know I said that I was the master and like somebody recoiled and I've seen that happen over and over again you're not supposed to say you're the master now you're you're the the pet's person as if you know you're you're on the same plane and you just happen to be the one who makes all the decisions I think there's a lot of euphemisms in democracy because these yeah. hierarchies still persist I think hierarchy is natural and inevitable and not always evil. It can be evil, but not always evil. But a guarantee of evil is pretending that you have a hierarchy, that you don't have a hierarchy when in fact you do, because that's deception and dishonesty and all kinds of, that's, a, that's just a breeding ground for corruption. That's you know one of the reasons why I'm critical of these democratic pretenses that we have uh, nowadays. But uh, the master-pet relationship is one where I make all the decisions for her, but I'm doing it for her sake. I mean, I take her to the doctor when I think she's ill and she can get better. I feed her at a certain time, not because I'm mean and I've been withholding food because you know I want to eat it. It's because I think it's best that she not eat all the time, which is what she would want to do. I mean, it's just a clear case where her life is better because I make the decisions. Otherwise, you know, all the meat in the fridge would be gone by now instead of being dispensed. Okay, so. The clean version of natural slavery that Aristotle and Plato, whom I know better on this question, highlight is that that's what the master-slave relationship is like. Okay. What they don't pay as much attention to is the ways in which it's not like a master-pet relationship because I feed her at certain times for my benefit would be the idea. Uh, now, your question was, does the master have some obligations to treat the slave well? Yeah, and basically, if he yeah, if he has some obligations, and if he yeah. simply cannot just do as he or she pleases. Yeah. So I want to give two answers that are intention. I think they're both Nietzschean. One I've just sort of set up because I think he's part of this philosophical tradition of thinking about slavery that's modeled on the master-pet relationship or the parent-child relationship. And, you know, even though I have the right to make all kinds of decisions for my pet, like there are many bad decisions that I could make. And even though it's my right to make those decisions, you could look at me and say, what an awful person, you know, he only feeds her, or you know, yeah. even worse nowadays, you know, he feeds her five meals a day and she's obese because, you know, he just gives her what, what she wants. Like that's an abuse of my master privilege. Yeah. Uh, and you, you can see that happening all, all the time. Again, Plato would be all over that. Um, but that's in tension with another view that Nietzsche expresses. This I remember quite distinctly. Another view Nietzsche expresses about natural slavery. It's in an early treatise, a little essay, I should say, that he wrote at the same time as The Birth of Tragedy. So it's 1873. And maybe The Birth of Tragedy is 1872. Uh, at any rate, it doesn't matter. And in the Greek state, which is what this little essay is called, he says, natural slavery was an essential feature of the Greek state. It's what made them so great because the slaves did the menial work and the masters were free to philosophize and to write tragedies and to train for war. And, yeah. and that that's good, not just a necessary evil, but that's good because the state, the Greek state, he's arguing, but he thinks this is the way states should be. The state is a work of art. And that's why it's important to understand the, the book, The Birth of Tragedy, and the views in it to understand this treatise, because Dionysia and the Apollonian giving you this perfect synthesis, as we've discussed, the world itself, of which tragedy is an expression, which has the Schopenhauerian will and the phenomena, but then the state is just like a tragedy. And Nietzsche judges states on aesthetic criteria. Is it a beautiful state or not? And maybe beauty is not quite the right word, 
but whatever word you would use to say the Oedipus Rex is a great tragedy, that's the word that Nietzsche thinks you should use if you judge Athens to be a great state or Rome to be a great state or yeah. uh, major Japan to be a great state or, or whichever. It, namely, does it achieve great things at great costs? In other words, he doesn't think that the perfect state is going to be where everybody you know, has their portion of food and their, their, their TV show at night. It's going to be, is it going to the moon? Is it going to Mars? Is it producing a Shakespeare, et cetera, et cetera? And the price of that may very well be that you have a class of slaves. And that's intention, as I say, with the noblesse oblige notion of slavery, where you as a as a master should be treating your slaves as if they were pets namely you should be respectful of them and even a caretaker of them the, it's it, i think all three of these figures hold those two views in probably an irreconcilable tension right okay so now let's get into one of the questions i alluded to before the ubermensch versus yeah. the philosopher king because I, I think that's another interesting Yes. distinction to explore because that might in them in the, in the two concepts probably manifest some of the distinctions in terms of thinking between Plato and Nietzsche some of them we've already touched on or talked about but okay so starting with the philosopher king what is the philosopher king what are his traits I mean the ideal traits according to Plato yeah, he lists like seven of them. Um, I mentioned one already, which is crucial, which is courage. Mm -hmm. So the people who eventually become philosopher kings start out as being trained for war. And that class of soldiers, the warriors, are the people who didn't make it on to the next stage to become philosopher kings. So in other words, let's, let's imagine we get a generation of children, you know, we got 100 kids, you know, five years old, and, and we start training them for the future, we're going to be training them as soldiers. And, you know, Plato's not a sadist. He doesn't think that immediately, you know, you, you give them weapons and, and you know, he, I mean, he, he thinks you titrate the knowledge of war and, and the gore and so on, according to age. And he has quite sophisticated ways to, to do this. Um, but he also thinks, for example, as I mentioned earlier, you, you, you start training them in the values of a warrior. And since Homer is how we train our children, we got to be careful that there aren't passages in Homer which will make them bad soldiers. Mm -hmm. At any rate, of those seven characteristics, you know, which are, you know, cleverness is, is clearly one of them, good memory. I forget the others for the moment, but you, you sort of get the picture. But the, I, I want to emphasize courage. In other words, these aren't nerds. <laughs> These aren't, you know, these these aren't the people with high IQ. I mean, they may have, and they should have high IQ as we understand that nowadays. But that's just one of these other six criteria. A very important of which, the most important in that early stage until the age of 20. The most important is, uh, are they courageous? And maybe I'll I'll just pause on this because it's it's important to me as I think about my career and my field, philosophy. This clearly is not a field, academia in general, this is not a field in which there is any selection for courage. Mm. Right? There is high selection pressure for IQ, if you like, uh, for uh, quantity of publication, which is it comes from certain character traits and not from others. Uh, conscientiousness, perhaps, that is yeah, not the exactly. same as courage. So. It's not the same or it is? 
No, no, it's not the same. It's not, yeah. No. And, you know, I think it becomes blindingly obvious the longer you spend in academia that academics, by and large, let's just say nice, are not courageous. I think there are a lot of cowards. And that's... Oh, okay, okay, but wait a minute. Is this courage something that, uh, in the eyes of Plato, should manifest... Uh, only in certain domains, like, for example, since he's talking about the philosopher king in the intellectual domain or just yeah. across life? Across domains, yeah. Okay. He thinks that if you train somebody and select for people who are courageous in under physical duress, you're going to find that characteristic, which is also going to manifest in intellect, what you might call intellectual courage or okay. courage in intellectual circumstances. Mm -hmm. And you, know, you anticipate nicely the, the point I was driving towards, which is that in this field, academic philosophy, but like most of the other, I would think maybe of them all, um, you don't have uh, an institution which is selecting for people with that quality as a minimal condition or training them uh, in that, whatever that would be like, no, nothing like the training that we get. And so as a result, you get a highly conformist environment in the academy, where courage is, if nothing else, an antidote to conformity in the intellectual domain, because somebody's willing to say, hey, this is false, even though everybody else says it's true, and is willing to say it despite the fact that, you know, he's going to be ostracized, for example, and, and the pain that 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 causes, not to mention, you know, other other consequences. So you asked about the, the philosopher kings, and I just said, well, here's a feature of them that makes them unlike what people today's philosophers or philosophy professors. And, and Plato's totally aware of this in book six, which is you know a book about the philosopher. He says, you know, here are the versions that you'll get if you don't have this training or this selection. And he describes very well the professor of philosophy. <laughs> you know, he, he says it, it's, it's like, it's like uh, you know, a, a noble family has lost all their wealth and they have to marry their 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 daughter off to the tanner, which you know the tanner is is like he may be a free man, but he smells you know, to be a tanner in antiquity or it, it, that that the chemicals used in that just meant that that they smelled. So at any rate, he, he's talking about being a philosopher without this training is is just like it's a you've fallen from grace. You, you you're not doing the real thing. But so, I, I mean, so is he just talking about an ideal or? Did he have any specific people he pointed to that could be philosopher yeah. kings? Yeah, he didn't point to anybody. Okay. But I think he's got to have two people in mind if he has anybody in mind. Uh, Socrates, probably. Socrates yeah. and himself. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. I mean, he's, he's a narcissist without showing, and, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, just as I said with Nietzsche, he's earned the right to that because he's one of the great minds and writers of all time. And he was also apparently a great wrestler. So I think that he is, you know, drawing on his own experience of physical exertion and physical courage when he describes those soldiers. And of course, Socrates, just as many Athenians fought in battles because of the Peloponnesian War. And by Plato's account, which may be glorified, uh, Socrates was a great warrior, at least he was a courageous one who stood uh, his ground in battle even when others fled. And Alcibiades in the symposium, when he gives a, a speech in praise of Socrates, says, if it weren't for this man, I would be dead because uh, you know, the, the army was attacking and I fell off my horse or whatever. And Socrates stood his ground and, and defended me against you know, however many 
excess men, and as a result, I was able to escape. So, yeah. you know, uh, probably not completely true, but I think that, you know, Plato's not going to make stuff up whole cloth because his audience would, will just, you know, his audience knew the guy. So, uh, you know, his audience would have dismissed dismiss these things completely. So there's got to be some reality to, to that. Mm -hmm. So what about the other main traits? Yeah. Um, you know, once you've got that pool of warriors, you select them. The first way that you select them is you find who identifies his own fate or her own fate, because he thinks that women can become philosopher kings, who identifies themselves with the city. And, and he's quite specific about that. If the city does badly, they feel like they're doing badly. If the city does well, they feel like they're doing well. They never feel that their fate and the city's fate is different. And what's, what's stated as such, what a great criterion for the selection of leaders. Because, you know, think about our, our current crop. I mean, this is a constant problem in every state, of course, but the way in which people rise to the top who don't have the interests of the state but instead their own interests. Uh, you know, Plato's aware of that problem and he thinks that because he's got this fantasy where he can select, he's gonna select for that criterion and then he's gonna give them what we would call philosophical training, which ironically, well, not ironically, but to an outsider seems like a surprise, 10 years of education in mathematics. Hmm. And there's some practical reasons for that. You know, it's gonna make them better strategists and they're gonna do artillery better and so on. but it's really an intellectual formation in regarding eternal timeless truths that mm. uh, Plato thinks math gives you, uh, you know, in, in the most direct form. And after all, math is still taught. It's kind of amazing to me how much math is still taught to children mm -hmm. and, and youths in school. It just seems so countercultural. I think it's just a legacy of, of our past. It probably won't continue to the same extent. Um, but Plato thinks that's propedeutic to studying what we would nowadays call philosophy, which is an investigation of questions like what is justice, what is courage, what is goodness, and so on. That's that's called dialectic. Mm -hmm. And that comes, so we're now up to age 30. That comes from ages 30 to 35. And he thinks that if somebody does, anybody does dialectic without that training, they're going to end up as a sophist, which is to say someone who's really good at winning arguments that doesn't have the proper orientation. And he thinks the proper orientation is acquired not only by that training, which now has taken them up to the age of 30 and then 35, but then 15 more years of practical administration of the city. In other words, they're not going to become full professors. They're going to go out and, you know, be a, a minor judge and then a major judge and, you know, an official and so on and a general or whatever. And then only at age 50, after they've had that combination of practical, intellectual, and character formation, will they be philosopher kings or philosopher queens. Uh, you know, not, not to be politically correct, but simply to state what he says, which is to say women can, can play this role as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, even though he was very oriented toward these, I mean, immaterial forms and truth with a capital T, he also put yes. lots of value in practical life. Right. Yes. And if, if I may, those five years of dialectic between ages 30 and 35, the goal is to get an account or a philosophy, as we would say nowadays, of the good. And I mentioned that word a few times. I think the best quick, dirty way to think about that is God, because a lot of the uh, 
you know, commonalities in the monotheistic religions that have followed and to some extent are, are indebted to Plato uh, are using this notion, which is to say, outside of time, outside of space, uh, the source of everything, the orientation of, uh, of where we belong and where we'll find our ultimate happiness. Mm-hmm. Those five years, that dialectic is to produce an account, a theory, a philosophy. And that's the kind of thing that gets rewarded in the academy nowadays, even, even when it's at its best, namely theories. Have you got a good theory or an account of this or that? Yeah. You know, pretty, pretty ambitious nowadays. Have you got a good account of God? Have you got a good account of the good? But that's, that's just the beginning for him. Then you go out and do this practical stuff for 15 years, and you might think, why that order? And I thought about that for a long time. I think what he thinks is that it's, it's fine to have an intellectual account. That's good. It's better than the alternative, not having one. But you, you need to absorb it. You need to incorporate it. It's not just an intellectual activity. You need to go out and live in the light of that account until you can see the good everywhere, not just on the page, but you know, in your relationships with people, in, in, in the coffee cup even. Mm-hmm. I think that's not an exaggeration. Similar to Nietzsche, there's so many similarities and differences along the way, but that makes them similar to Nietzsche, the point I made earlier about, for Nietzsche, it's about incorporation. It's about the blood. You mm-hmm. know, Plato doesn't think it's about the blood, that's a difference between them. But for Nietzsche, it's about the blood. For Plato, it's about the character, the incorporation, the absorption to the point that one can act without thinking in service of the good. Yeah. in Plato's case, or yeah. in Nietzsche's case, without thinking, act as if the eternal return is true, because it is. Mm-hmm. Okay, so with all of that in mind, and of course you've already pointed to some points of divergence and places where Nietzsche and Plato would agree, tell us about the Ubermensch and perhaps the, what would be the main differences between the philosopher king and someone who was, in the eyes of Nietzsche, an Ubermensch. Okay. All right, so a couple preparatory comments about the Ubermensch. One is, and this will bring them closer together, he uses that word only in, as I mentioned very early in this interview, thus spoke Zarathustra. But he uses another phrase in Beyond Good and Evil, you know, um, several years later, the philosophers of the future. I think he's got the same person in mind. So... You know, Plato's talking about philosopher kings, Nietzsche's talking about philosophers of the future. Now it's a little closer. We're not just talking about this strange Superman character versus, you know, these intellectuals. I've stressed in Plato's case how these are people with a certain character that's that's especially courageous. These are people who are generals and practically adept, not just nerds. That brings them a little closer to the Superman, the Ubermensch, but it, but Nietzsche himself brings the Ubermensch closer to Plato's philosopher king by calling them philosophers of the future. So what is the real, what's a real philosopher for Nietzsche? Not just, you know, the philosophy professors that both of them share scorn for, but who are these philosophers of the future? So that's the first preparatory comment. The second is that there's a very common mistake that's easily avoided uh, in understanding the Ubermensch. Mm-hmm. The common mistake and I mean among students, scholars don't make this mistake, but uh, the common mistake is to think when Nietzsche describes master morality, that's what the Ubermensch is. And if that were the case, then this Ubermensch that he's forecasting will come, we, we don't need to imagine some hazy future, we can just look in the past. Achilles, right, or a samurai, or, or however you like, these these master figures who like jousting and, and raping and feasting and so on. Oh, okay, is that what? 
No, that's not what he thinks. And this, I think this is this the tip of a, of a deep iceberg because we talked about master morality and slave morality earlier and slave morality is clearly bad, he thinks. And what makes it bad, to be clear, is it's dishonesty. It's not bad because it's striving for power. Everything strives for power, according to Nietzsche. It's bad because it strives for power in a dishonest way. Masters, by contrast, are also striving and keeping their power, but they're doing it openly. So there's a value judgment there for Nietzsche, namely uh, strive for power, but, but do so openly. However, the Ubermensch is superior to the masters because the Ubermensch will come in the future, the masters in the past, that's not the because, that's the case. So what's happened in the meantime? Well, there was this master class, let's just say in the Homeric period, and this master class got tricked by the slaves and Plato was an important moment in that trickery. Christianity was you know, a big moment in that uh, trickery. Mm -hmm. Nietzsche says in Beyond Good and Evil, by the way, that Christianity is just Platonism for the masses. <laughs> in other words, you, you take the Platonic yeah. metaphysics and you give it a, a, a memorable story of the sort that most people can understand and bang, there you have the corruption of, of master morality. Well, it's not all bad, according to Nietzsche, because the masters, to put it bluntly, were stupid. I mean, first of all, they got tricked. But secondly, you look at Achilles, for example, or you know the other Homeric warriors, they're just, they're kind of simple. <laughs> There's not a lot of depth to them. So, you know, you, you, I mean, sure, I'd like to hang out with them and sort of see what they're like and so on, but, you know, I feel like I would exhaust, in my inquiry to understand them, I feel like I would kind of exhaust what there was to know after a while, after a few beers. And Nietzsche, Nietzsche thinks the same thing, that they're, they're, they're simple. And that what slave morality did, because it was dishonest, it had to be clever. It, 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 it succeeded, it tricked the masters, but as a result, it produced the priests who are the new master class, at least he's describing antiquity. The, this new master class who, in the sense of controlling the population, but they do so now with a spiritual depth that you didn't have in the person, say, of Achilles. And so he says, with the invention of the priest, humanity became deep, dangerous, and interesting. So he's, he's saying by implication, Achilles is not interesting. And I, I kind of, I see what he means. I'm a, as I say, of course I'd love to meet Achilles, the fictional character, but in, in, in some movie, I'd like to you know, have a few beers with him, but it wouldn't be interesting in the way that uh, Richelieu would be interesting, or you know, many of the other strategists, priests, and so on, other theologians. So humanity becomes deep, dangerous, and interesting in the person of the priest. And I think what he's imagining that the Ubermensch to be is Achilles with priest combined. In other words, this figure who will be simultaneously deep, dangerous, and interesting as well as living joyfully in the pursuit and, and maintenance of power without any guilt or resentment. Right. So, and, and about the, the points of divergence, I mean, what do you, where do you think the yeah. Ubermensch differs the most from the philosopher king? Okay. So let's go back to the philosopher king. The philosopher king uh, after those 15 years of practical city administration in Plato's narrative, and this is simplistic, but in the narrative, has a revelation, sees the good. Mm -hmm. 
and that's it's important that it's seeing it's not thinking the good it's seeing the good and that's what i tried to highlight with saying all of a sudden or maybe over you know over time wake up one day and realize wow i i feel god i see god everywhere the good and we don't need to use god now we, the good the philosopher king is oriented towards the good not towards power power mm -hmm. is always used in the service of the good mm -hmm. power is downstream from the good but the in the ubermensch or as i put it achilles fused with the priest this is somebody for whom there is no good in Plato's sense. There is no transcendent spiritual realm. And in fact, that's a slavish trick. Yeah. And the difference between Ubermensch and Achilles is the Ubermensch is not going to be tricked because the Ubermensch is as deep and dangerous and interesting as the priest. He's been there, he's done that, and he's going to the next stage, which is life without, as I mentioned, guilt and resentment, which, just to reprise, were the products ultimately of this species-long error of linear time. Maybe now the components are coming together that the Ubermensch is going to be the first person, if you like, who will not be human any longer. This will be the first being that's like us but is no longer part of our species. And, and he's not just talking um, ideals here. He, he, he means a biological transformation. This is why it's a breeding program. It's not a bunch of philosophy seminars that produce you know, the Ubermensch. It's a breeding program that will eventually produce a first and then a generation and then you know, many beings who are kind of like us, but believe in the depths of their blood in the eternal return. And as a result, don't need, don't feel guilt and resentment of that deep existential variety that I described. And as a result, don't need the illusions of logic and substance and all the philosophical tricks that Plato was a party to elaborating, they won't need that because they've evolved beyond that. That was an evolutionary stage. Remember the, the you know the human beings we imagine who don't believe in logic and, and substances and so on, they died out. Well this is going to be the superhumans who have gone beyond the need for those things and can live without those illusions. Mm -hmm. Okay so Look, um, I wanted to get into three more topics, but I'm okay. not sure if today we have time to cover even just one of them because okay. each of them takes a lot of time. I wanted to get into truth with a capital T and yes. where Plato and Nietzsche diverge there, reason and also ethics. I mean, we've been talking also about slave morality, master morality and so on, but there are aspects of ethics, particularly meta-ethics and... Nietzsche's take on it, where ethics come from and stuff like that, that is very interesting. But what do you say about uh, finishing our conversation today and then perhaps later on in the year or next year uh, getting together again and just to talk about those three big topics? Because I, I, I wouldn't want to get into one of them and not have enough time to finish it. So. Yeah. So it's totally up to you. I've got another half hour and we could touch on them, or if, if you think with some reason that that would be unsatisfying because we would uh, just be flirting with stuff and not really getting into it, I'm happy to stop now and I'd, I'd love to come back again. You know, and the advantage of doing it later too is that I hope my, my thinking about these things will deepen and evolve. Okay, so I will put that challenge on the table then okay. to, to next time talk about truth, reason, 
and ethics, particularly meta-ethics, from the okay. perspective of Plato and Nietzsche and where okay. possibly they might converge and when they diverge, of course. And, okay, so before we go, uh, would you like to mention where people can find you on the internet? What are the best places out there? Yeah, um, I have a Twitter account, which is at Plato for now. So at uh, P-L-A-T-O, numeral four N-O-W. The idea of that account originally when I started it five years ago was, what would it be like to be a Platonist now? You know, I wasn't saying I was speaking for Plato or anything like that, but rather, and again, as we started this interview, I don't consider myself a Plato scholar any longer. I'm, I'm you know, I, I hope that I'm not falsifying him. So I, I, I don't mean any disrespect to Plato scholars, they've been very helpful to me in my career, but my focus now is what is it to actually be a Platonist? What is it to believe those things and, and especially to live in those lights? So that was the idea, as I say, five years ago. Twitter account has just, over time, just become me. Uh, others can judge whether whether I'm still a Platonist uh, in, in, in those matters or, or not. So that would be that would be a central place to find me. Uh, I did, as you know, we discussed, I had a podcast uh, on Black Mirror and philosophy uh, that I think is still pinned at the top of that Twitter account. And I think 25 episodes of that podcast were released. I recorded another 25 more, and it's a sad story why they were never produced or, or released. But, you know, if, if you, uh, not you, but the, but the audience is, is interested in listening to me more, uh, there are those 25 episodes where I talk about particular Black Mirror episodes. My, my goal was to do the entire series, and I think um, what made it on was only six of the episodes, or seven or eight. But at any rate, I talk about particular episodes, but I, I talk about philosophers and their you know, various accounts of various things and how for each episode, with the help of two or three philosophers, we can understand the philosophical depth mm -hmm. of the Black Mirror episodes. And also use the Black Mirror episodes to appreciate you know, the relevance of of those philosophers for for living now or living in the near future, and mm -hmm. as you can see, that's kind of a theme of my career. Is I'm 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 interested in what what is it to be a philosopher now? What is it to be a philosopher in the near future? Using uh, you know the best philosophy of the past. Okay, great. So Patrick, as always, it's been real really fun to talk to you, and we will get together then later this year or next year to cover the topics I mentioned. So thank you so yeah. much for coming on the show. Thanks. Those are, those are great questions, Ricardo. I hope I didn't go on too long, but uh, at any rate, I also look forward to the next time. Oh. Now, what is it to be a philosopher in the near future using uh, you know, the best philosophy of the past? Okay, great. So, Patrick, as always, it's been real, really fun to talk to you, and we will get together then later this year or next year to cover the topics I mentioned. So thank you so yeah. much for coming on the show. Thanks. Those are, those are great questions, Ricardo. I hope I didn't go on too long, but uh, at any rate, I also look forward to the next time. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. To keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Any amount, even $1 per month, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights Learning and Development Done Differently. Check their website at enlights.com. 
I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimiro, Greg Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Vissel, Jacob Linkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Enrique Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Nieberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Spinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Ugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslin Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dez Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dimitri Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Saima Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Denise Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, and Max Belby. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafinia, Kian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardis France, Thomas Trumbull, and Nuno Welder. And my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.